Hello, and welcome to Still No Plan. I'm Jordan Granger. And I'm Autumn Webb, and we are so happy you're here. Hey, what's up, guys? Happy Wednesday. It's actually just Jordan today. I'm going to be recording this quick intro, and then we'll get in the conversation Autumn, Jackie, and I had. Um, To preface this incredible episode, Jackie Norris uh, attended USC with Autumn and I, and she is just an absolute light. I have just so many good things to say about her. She is equal parts intelligent and vulnerable and lighthearted and funny and just has the best energy. And so I really think you guys are going to love this episode. It really feels like a conversation among friends. She gets into her experience doing an inpatient program for OCD treatment. Definitely stick around to the end because the end, I think, is one of the most fascinating parts. She talked about how her OCD impacted her relationship with alcohol, and it's not at all in the way that you would think. So definitely stick around. She's so open. She's so real. She's so raw. And it really is an incredible conversation. So let's get into it. One of the things we were talking about as we realized we haven't talked to anyone who graduated our year yet. And that was really strange because we graduated, obviously, in the middle of a pandemic and we like graduated in quarantine. So if you want to go back a few years and talk about your experience with that and like what that was like for you, we'd love to kind of start there. My favorite time, the, <laughs> the crown jewel of my existence. Oh, I love it. Um, yes, definitely. <laughs> so I basically like I loved college. It was fantastic for me. It was a really great environment for me where I was really, really able to thrive. And I really enjoyed it and had a really strong community there. Um, and what I would say just kind of like giving a little background on myself, which I know we're going to get into later in the episode, but this pertains to the COVID transition is I have actually struggled with OCD my entire life since age nine was when I was diagnosed. And with that came a lot of anxiety and depression and panic disorder. And I got a whole fun little mixed bag. Um, <laughs> it's a little cocktail. I like to call it. But <laughs> I remember my scene in college I wasn't really affected negatively mental health wise, if that makes sense. Like those, obviously I had like things going on and like relationship problems and friendship problems. And it wasn't like college was great all the time, but my specific mental health concerns weren't extreme or severe during college. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that had to do with the fact that I had such a strong, healthy community and I was so busy and around people all the time. And that is what I've learned a safety behavior for me is to always be around people. And in college, I had that. So my OCD and anxiety and stuff wasn't really an issue. And then the second half of my senior year, right before we like broke for quarantine, um, I took, I had like finished all of my required courses. So I was only taking like eight units or something. And I ended up having so much free time and I had an internship, but it still was like, I had so much free time. And with all this free time started to come the OCD behaviors and anxiety. And what I've learned is that OCD like thrives in unstructured time. And it really started to come up and I was really anxious about graduating. I didn't have a job lined up. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I 
had come from like kind of the type of background and perspective where it was like, in my mind, I was going to go to college. I was going to major in business. I was going to get a job in consulting. And then I was going to graduate and do the consulting job and it was going to pay me well and whatever. But I had done earlier my senior year, all kind of the consulting recruiting and all of that. And it just, I wasn't excited about it. Um, And just at that time, I really wanted to do something more in entertainment. And I just knew I was more excited about that. But then I didn't know where to go from there. So I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. I knew I was going to be in LA because I loved LA, but I like just didn't know what was going to happen. And I think the uncertainty was really stressful for me. And my OCD symptoms and my anxiety really, really started to peak. And I remember I started to have really bad panic attacks. And I've had panic attacks since I was nine, maybe even earlier. Um, Mm -hmm. But they had kind of subsided during college. And then they came this second semester, came back really bad. And it was like to the point where I was having like six to eight a day. I couldn't drive like because I'd have panic attacks on the freeway. Like it was a whole thing. And so I remember my friends and I had planned to go a spring break in Costa Rica and we were trying to decide whether or not we were going to cancel it because of COVID. And I was like, I'm just going to cancel it because I like, I I can't go on a plane right now. Like there's just no way. Um, just because of my anxiety. And I was like, I just need to go home and reset. And I was interested in doing some sort of intensive therapy program. And I was like, I want to try something like that, uh, maybe for after I graduate or whatever and figure it out. So I had reached out to like a bunch of places and then COVID happened and it was like, everyone needs to go home immediately. The whole world is shut down. And so then all of these places I'd reach out to were kind of like, ah, we don't know what's going on. And I'm like, okay, that's okay. I don't know either. And so I was like at home and I had started meeting with a new therapist who specialized in OCD and that was very helpful. And I was sort of like, okay, like I kind of have this under control. Um, And then I was home and I was miserable. Like I was so unbelievably miserable. I was so scared of COVID, like always convinced I had it, was very scared of it. Like I would, I remember I was like, going for a run and I like was out of breath because I went for a fucking run um, for the first time like ever. And I was like, oh my God, like I have COVID because like I am out of, I'm having shortness of breath. And my mom was like, you're fine. <laughs> but I like, we were the family that like washed our groceries. Like when we, mm-hmm. like we were so scared of it. And I think I live, in, I live in Boston. I don't live there now, but like I'm from Boston mm-hmm. and Massachusetts was really like intense about it and like really on top of it. And so that was very stressful for me. And I think the biggest thing for me was this big lack of community. I went from having like the strongest community I could have ever imagined to nothing, like to my four person, like five person family. And like, Mm -hmm. that was it. And it was just like, holy shit. Like what, what just happened? Um, And that was really hard for me. And then I think when I thought when I would go back out to L.A. and live in L.A. post-grad, that that was going to be like, okay, I'm going to like have this community again and it's going to be the same thing because like, why wouldn't it be? And it wasn't. It wasn't at all. It was totally different. And I lived with two girls that I had lived with in college. um, And one of them I was really, really close with and was like my best friend. And the other one I was less close with, but I'd been friends with sort of all four years. And... That was actually pretty good for a bit. And then it got really bad, really, really fast. Um, It was really, 
really bad. Everything bad that could have happened happened. I would say the only thing that like didn't happen was any sort of like physical violence. Other than mm-hmm. that, everything bad that could have happened happened. Um, and it was so toxic and traumatizing for me. It was like really, mm-hmm. really, and I'm sure it was also toxic and traumatizing for them, like everyone involved, but it was really bad. It was very terrible. And that kind of happened over the course of like, it like deteriorated slowly. It wasn't like one day there was a switch. It was like, this was deteriorating and falling apart for months. Eventually it got to the point where like, there was no, there was no other option for me and like my just emotional safety than to move out. So I had to move out. I had, I remember I had like 24 hours to move out before it was like the next month. So I, couldn't mm. so I could like get out of the lease, whatever. And uh, it was such there were like lawyers involved. It was a whole idea. Like it was yeah. so awful, you guys. <clears throat> you have no fucking idea. So I found I, I didn't have time to find a roommate. I just found <laughs> a studio and moved in in 24 hours. And so then I went from having this like I guess it wasn't like a roommate community, um, because we weren't close, but I had sort of people around and I lived in a pretty central spot to kind of this more living alone in a pretty isolated spot. Also, this whole time I was working from home remotely. So I started Mm -hmm. a job. I like continued my internship through the summer after my senior year. And then I started a job in September and was working remotely for that job. And it wasn't just at that point, the role I was in wasn't super engaging. So I was just kind of like, whatever, all of my engagement was all social So now I got to this point where I was living alone in a studio, working from home alone and terrified that all of my other friends hated me because they were friends with these girls. So we were like all kind of like a friend group. And then I topped out and I was like, holy shit, all of my other friends are going to hate me. Um, Mm -hmm. And now I've lost that community too. Thankfully, like spoiler alert, they don't hate me. I love them. I went to stagecoach with them. Um, it's it's all great, but I was really, really worried about that, and like that definitely created a lot of anxiety. And I was mourning the loss of this friendship that was like one of my best friends for three years of college, like two to three years mm-hmm. of college. Like it completely blew up in my face, and that was really, really horrible. And I kind of had two supports, which were really wonderful, which is my cousin who lives in LA and then my boyfriend at the time. Um, Both of them were really wonderful and fantastic and supportive. Starting like summer of 2021 was when I would say I started to get like pretty depressed. Once it kind of like hit like May, June, I started to get have these depressive episodes, like big depressive spells. Um, And that was really, really hard for me. And I would just say my mental health just kept increasing and getting worse. And what would happen is I would like have a really bad, like sort of depressive spell. Anxiety would get really high, like panic, everything. And I'd fly home and I'd fly home to Boston and I would stay there for a couple weeks. And then I'd be like, okay, like I feel better now. And then I'd come back and then I'd come back and I'd be here for like a month and then it would get really bad again. And then I'd fly home for a couple weeks and then I'd come back and like, I probably did that. And that made it really hard for me to like build any sort of community because anytime I got close Mm -hmm. with people, I then disappeared for a month. And then eventually I had done that for like months. Eventually my boyfriend and I had broken up. Um, 
and it just wasn't like the relationship just wasn't working. I still care about him so deeply. It was honestly the best breakup I've ever had. I didn't know a breakup could be so like respectful and kind and like caring. And it was like a very kind, respectful, like thoughtful breakup. And I remember after that ended, I was like very lost and confused because he was really my community. Him and his friends had become my community at that point. And I was Mm -hmm. definitely felt dependent on him. And that was part of like kind of just my strategy of coping. And that wasn't fair to put on him. And then things started kind of deteriorating. And then in January, I got COVID and I was alone for a week. And my biggest fear is being alone. That was kind of like my biggest like insecurity, OCD, anxiety, fear was being alone for too long. And so then I had to be alone for too long. And it got really, really bad. And I kind of hit like what I would call like my rock bottom where it was like, I have completely succumbed to this disorder. And like, I am now totally being controlled by my OCD, my anxiety, my depression, like my panic. Like I, I am not in the driver's seat anymore. And it became very clear to me that like, I was just a passenger now. And I booked a flight home for like 10 hours later, went home and was like, I need to do something drastically different. Like I cannot keep doing this cycle where I like come home and then like start to feel better and then go back. Like I need to do something different and I need to figure out a solution and like a way to be able to live with a guy. I can't live like this. Like I can't, I can't do this anymore. It was so bad. I was like, I want to find a program that will be like helpful and I need to find a program kind of now. And I've, have friends who have done pro whether it be for like an eating disorder or for like alcoholism or whatever, like drug use um, or bipolar disorder. Like I've had friends who've done programs like this and it has like been so beneficial to them. I feel like very grateful because I, my parents have been so supportive, like couldn't have been more supportive of just like my whole life therapy and mental health treatment. And like always took it very seriously and really regarded it as like such a positive thing. And that I feel so lucky for, because I know so many people do not have that. Um, And that like was such a huge support for me. So when I said I wanted to do this program, they were like, okay, like do this program. Like you should, you should do it. And I tried to find one. It was really hard insurance was really hard trying to find one. And the thing that's tricky is with OCD, you need to find an OCD specific program. So a general mental health program could actually make the OCD worse, if that makes sense. And that's not easy. And it has to be in state because of state laws um, Mm -hmm. for like psychiatry and treatment. So you had to find something in state. I felt so like lucky that I lived in Massachusetts because the best program for OCD in the country is in Massachusetts. And it is at the Harvard teaching hospital, which I had heard of because of a call her daddy episode with (laughs) this girl, Eileen, who had done a five month stay at this hospital and it Mm -hmm. had like changed her life. And so I knew what it was because of that. And I was like, 
okay, I've heard good things about this program. I mean, granted, like, I don't know the person personally, but (laughs) she spoke really highly about it. It wasn't, she didn't do the OCD specific program, but like good things about this hospital and this institute. And it was covered by my insurance and I was able to get in, but it was like, it wasn't easy. Like to get in, I had to do like, I had to write like an application. Like I had to do a 14 page application going oh through God. all of like, my specific. I swear my mental health sucks. Like, it sucks. <laughs> it sucks. I can't fucking brush my teeth. And you want me to write a 14 page application of all of the symptomology I've had my entire life. Are you kidding me? Like mm-hmm. I had to do that. Then after I did that, I had to do an assessment and like do a whole long interview process thing like it was not easy to get in. and then you have to wait two to four months to get in like it was not an easy process and I got in and did that and now I'm back in LA that's incredible and I think I mean you said so many different things it's funny because I mental health is a huge passion area of mine like I've worked for a mental health nonprofit I've done a lot of research in mental health but I think it's interesting what you said about OCD and like typical mental health like situations because I kind of focus on general mental health and OCD is not very talked about and it's also very different. I think all of these other symptoms like depression and anxiety and those type of things like tie in together much even like PTSD, bipolar disorder, like those things tie in a little bit better. OCD I don't know that much about because it's not in general information. So and you can get as specific as you want or just keep it very general but I would love if you could just kind of go back and give like, what is OCD? I feel like it's a very misunderstood mental health disorder um, and also like aggressively and incorrectly self-diagnosed. Yeah. So I would love for you to talk about like what OCD actually is. And yeah, like I said, keep it as general as you want. So I will gladly talk about this because it is is something I'm very passionate about, (laughs) but it is it is really upsetting because of how misperceived OCD is in media and in culture. And Mm -hmm. I don't think it's the fault of consumers. So like friends or people I work with or people I know, like who say these things because of how it's literally portrayed. I was actually Googling it yesterday. Like what is the definition of OCD? And in like the Oxford languages dictionary, it's defined as an adjective. It's a noun but it's defined as an adjective and it's defined as like the tendency to keep things clean and like orderly, which is so not the case. So, but that's how it's, that's how it's expressed and that's Mm -hmm. how people use it. And I remember like even being in college and I tell people like, Oh, I have OCD. And they're like, Oh, well it's not that bad because your room's like really messy. And I'm like, (laughs) yeah. Okay. I mean, I guess like, but here's what people don't understand. Hoarding is a symptom of OCD. Hoarding is OCD. So it doesn't make sense that it would be everything has yeah. to be clean and orderly. Whereas like you could have OCD and your symptomology could be being a hoarder. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's where it's like just so misconstrued. Um, and I think it's really tough. Like the one thing I would implore people not to do is not use it as like, Oh, like my OCD is acting up. I have to format everything correctly or like, like a quirk. Oh, Exactly. Like, oh, I'm just so OCD. I just need my like room to be clean. Like, mm-hmm. I fucking wish that's what it was. But <laughs> like, that's not what it is. So basically, the way OCD works is it is an obsession 
it's like obsessions and then compulsions to manage that obsessions. So the cycle of OCD, which I think is the best way to describe it, is there's a trigger. So a trigger happens and that increases distress. And then your your behavior, to you do a behavior to decrease the distress. And then the mm. distress decreases until the trigger happens again. And the triggers are usually caused by interpretations of certain things and intrusive thoughts. So a thought that intrusive thoughts everyone has, but someone with OCD is going to latch onto it and stick onto it. Whereas someone without OCD is going to be like, Oh, weird thought. So for example, I, this is one I had, and this is one that I think is like easy to talk about. I used to be terrified. I was allergic to nuts, terrified. I got blood tests done. I've never been allergic to nuts. No one in my family is allergic to nuts. Like there's no nut allergy. I, mm-hmm. but one time I was going to eat a nut and I had the thought, what if you ate this nut? And OCD thoughts are com- classified by what if, what if this, what if? So it's like, what if you ate this nut and you go into anaphylactic shock and you die? So someone without OCD would be like, okay, well, I'm, I don't have, I'm not allergic to nuts. So I'm going to eat my fucking peanut. And they might not even notice the thought. Like they might not even notice it happen. Whereas I get that thought and I'm like, holy shit, that would be really bad. That would be really bad if I went into anaphylactic shock and died. So I I should not eat this nut because I could die and we cannot risk that happening. So my distress increased and then my behavior is avoidance. My ritual is avoidance. I'm going to avoid the nut. And now my distress decreased. But now let's say the trigger comes back in and my OCD says, well, what if you touched a nut and you went into anaphylactic shock and died? We can't risk that. Like maybe it's not just eating nuts. Maybe it's touching nuts that could also kill you too. Okay, well now I can't touch nuts. So now my world's getting smaller. And then let's say OCD is like, what if you touch a surface? And I like to externalize OCD, which is why I'm saying like OCD is talking versus Mm -hmm. like my brain says, because there's kind of like there's me and then there's my OCD. And that is very helpful to separate yourself from it. So then OCD says, well, what if you touched a surface that the nut touched? And then you went into anaphylactic shock and you died. We can't risk that. So now I'm cleaning all of my surfaces and I'm making sure my apartment is perfectly clean because I cannot risk any nut contamination where I could possibly die. So that's why like someone would keep their room clean. Mm. It's not because they like, like it to be clean and think it looks nice. It would, could be something like if it's not perfectly clean, I will die and I cannot risk dying. And is that how, it could maybe spiral into some of the extremist versions that you hear where it's like people need to wash their hands 26 times or whatever yes. it is that's the specific because they're, they need more and more. And they're like, well, what if the 25th time wasn't enough? Yes. I now need to wash my hand a 26th time. That's that makes exactly total sense. It. And if you didn't wash it right, like what if I didn't wash my hands right that time? Like I didn't use enough soap, so I should do it again just to be sure. And the whole yeah. thing of OCD tries to achieve certainty. This is a lot of what we would talk about in my program, but it's like OCD wants certainty. It wants certainty that your hands are perfectly clean. It wants certainty that your flat iron is unplugged when you leave the apartment and that the door is locked. Like it wants this certainty, but you can never ever achieve certainty because it's possible that your hands are not perfectly clean. No matter how many times you wash them, it's possible. Mm -hmm. So OCD will always find something new to be like, well, what if this, what if this, what if this? And then your world gets really, 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 really small. 
Yeah, this is really resonating with me because I, my therapist um, said that I have OCD tendencies, but I don't take it to that final step. So I do the yes. same thing where I'm like, I freak out about that I'm going to develop new anaphylactic allergies all the time <laughs> to the point where when I tried shellfish for the first time, I thought my throat was closing up. I yes. had a panic attack in the restaurant. And now every time we go somewhere, Sean's like, try this. You don't, you don't even know if you like it. Like, just try it. I'm like, uh-uh. I might have an allergy to shellfish. I've only had it one time in my life. So I do, I like, it makes sense to me now hearing you explain it this way because when my therapist said I have the tendencies, I was like, what's the difference between like having tendencies, but, but like not being diagnosed? And I think I just yeah. like, I think I take it to that first step. <laughs> I take it to the what if, freak out and avoid, but then I don't take it to two the and next three. One. But I also just want I I just wanted to transition kind of towards your impatient experience and what that looked like for you because I think it's really important to talk about one people don't talk about it I think there's much, there used to be kind of still is lingering a stigma with therapy obviously but I feel like we've we're really moving past that but in terms of like inpatient therapy I think that stigma is still really strong and totally. so I would love and I think in my head, the connotation I have with it is either you have this like beautiful retreat oasis or this like really cold <laughs> hospital looking experience. <laughs> like prison cell I, thing. Yeah. I'm sure there is in between, mm-hmm. but I feel like those are the only two versions that I think of. <laughs> like you're yes. in celebrity rehab or you are not. <laughs> yes. And so I would just love to hear about what the day to day was like for you and like more in depth about that experience. The way it was structured, so it was actually a virtual program, which was crazy. So I still had to be in Boston because of the state laws, but it was all virtual. I never went in once. And I was like, that's not going to be effective. I hate virtual. It was so effective. Like it worked so well. Um, Basically how it would work is there was a group of, the group was like 13 people, I think is what they cap it at. Um, It's like 13 patients. And you start every day with... It's called treatment planning. And what you would do is you'd go around and you would say your like what value you want to connect to for that day and what goal you're going to do to live out that value. So a lot of the emphasis in the program was living a values-driven life and doing things because you value them and they like mean they're meaningful to you, not doing things because you're working towards an emotion or a certain feeling, doing things because you value them. So you could pick, and it was, I loved this because then you could pick the value first or you could pick the activity first. So I'll give an example for both. Like you could say, I, I value self-care and I want to engage with my value of self-care today. So I'm going to fold my laundry because that'll be really nice to have clean folded clothes in my drawers. And that'll be a good self-care moment for me. Or you could think about it as like, what do I have to do today? Ugh, I have to fold my laundry. Well, does folding my laundry connect to my values? Yes, it connects to my value of self-care. So I'm going to engage in self-care by folding my laundry. And that is really helpful because and you don't have to enjoy the activity. Like a lot of activities that we value, we don't enjoy, like folding laundry. But it shows you like this isn't just an annoying thing to do. This is actually like something really kind you're doing for yourself. So we would do that every morning. We'd all go around and we'd say if we like accomplished our goals from yesterday. And that was like so great to kind of see everyone. Um, then we would have group sessions. So group sessions were like an hour long. 
and they all covered like different types of topics. So there would be like a faculty member who was like an expert in whatever topic it was. And it could be like intrusive thoughts group or perfectionism group or cognitive behavioral therapy group, um, mindfulness group, relapse prevention group. Like those were the types of groups that we would have. And so we do that for an hour and the groups were my favorite part. They were amazing. Um, and then after group, we did exposures for two hours. So the real treatment for OCD is exposure therapy and it's called ERPs, which stands for exposure and response prevention therapy. So it's basically with the cycle I was talking about, exposing yourself to the trigger, experiencing the distress, and then not engaging in the behavior and being able to, the goal of exposures is to learn to sit with the distress. It's not to desensitize you from the trigger. Sometimes a byproduct is desensitization of the trigger, but a lot of the times it's just the focus is just to live with the distress and live with the uncertainty of whatever could happen. So we would do that. You would do an hour coach and the coaches were PhD students. And so they would sit with you and let's say, I'll use the nuts example. My nuts example was from years and years and years ago. Um, so I didn't do this in the program, but this is how it would have worked is they would have me start by holding a nut and I'd have to hold a nut and I would sit there and I would have a panic attack and cry and be like, I'm going to die and go into anaphylactic shock if I'm holding this nut right now. Like I can't be doing this. And they would say, keep holding the nut, like do not put the nut down. And then I'd say, what if I die and go into anaphylactic shock? And they're like, and they, to embrace the uncertainty, they say, that could happen. Maybe, maybe miraculously right now, you're the first person to develop a nut allergy where your fingers touch the nut and you go into anaphylactic shock and die. That could happen right now. It could happen in two minutes. Could have happened five minutes ago. Like, we don't know. But right now you value recovery. So you're going to keep holding the nut. Um, and you'd sit there and hold the nut and like eventually you'd work up to eating it and you'd have panic attacks and be crying and have really, really high distress, but you would sit with that distress and you would have to sit with it and you'd have to accept the fact that maybe you're going to go into anaphylactic shock and die. This is, this is possible. This could happen. So that was really intense. The exposures are really intense, really, really hard. And the hardest part of all of this and, the reason I think that people wait to get treatment for like stuff like this, I mean, I don't know what it is for other, other things, but at least for OCD, I wouldn't have done those exposures if it wasn't like I felt like I had no other choice. So that's why I feel like a lot of people, when they make major changes and like go to programs and stuff like that, it's like when they feel like they have no other choice because it's so hard. It is you are rewiring your neurological pathways. Like it is so fucking hard and it is so scary and it's the hardest thing I've ever done. So you do exposures for two hours. Then we'd break for lunch. Then we would have another group after lunch. And then we would do self-directed exposure for an hour. So that's where like I would do the nut thing by myself because they want to teach you to be able to direct yourself in an exposure without giving yourself reassurance. Um, and... <clears throat> So that you, when you left the program, you'd be able to continue doing exposures on your own. Was it at home because of COVID or is, yes. this, is this program always at home? No, because and of COVID. Do you feel like it was 
equal, like, obviously you feel good. You're in LA. You feel better. Yes. <laughs> Good-ish. Yes. <laughs> and, just, like, um, amazing. It changed my life. Do you life. think it would have resonated more if you were there or been more powerful? Like, how long was this process, too, for you? It was 10 weeks. I was there for 10 weeks. People go from anywhere from 8 to 12. Um, I – here's my thing, my thought process. I honestly don't know. They do have an in-person program. So they do have a residential one. Um, that's in person, but everyone lives there. Like you live at the hospital and on campus. What I think is the value to the virtual program and to living at home is you get to practice your skills. So like weekends were so fucking hard. They were so hard because you didn't have this like structured time. But you were, they were opportunities to practice or like every day after the program, I would drive to the gym and like, I was scared of driving, but now I had to practice going and driving and working towards my value of physical health and well-being, um, by getting in the car and doing that. Whereas if I was in the residential program, I wouldn't have had to put my skills to use right away. And I think the transition out of it would have been much, much harder. I've heard that for like inpatient rehabs and like, especially like celebrity rehabs where you go to like a spa and you're just not drinking for a few months. And then you're like like back in the scene with your friends. (laughs) And it's like a very, you have to put the skills to the test. And a lot of people say like the inpatient part is the easiest part. And like the outpatient is when it gets tricky. So I think that is cool that you had like, the day structure of the inpatient and you had that like constant support, but you were still living your functional life in your own setting and like with all your daily triggers. Exactly. And you had to keep coming into face, like coming into contact with your triggers and start sort of using your skills as opposed to getting hit by all of them all at once. Do you take time off of work for this? Were you on the leave of absence? Yes. I did. I took a medical leave. It was like a disability leave. And my work was so supportive of that. And they, I didn't have to tell them, I didn't tell them why I was going. I just told them like, I have a a medical thing and I have to take disability leave. I had my HR person knew she was the only person who knew because I had to get like a note from the doctor from the hospital um, Mm -hmm. saying like Jackie's undergoing treatment and she needs it and whatever. But other than that, they were like, take as much time as you need. One thing we talked about before recording was your drinking and how that played into this. And I think, so for those that don't know, Jackie didn't drink throughout all of college or a lot of college. And she was also like a part of the scene. Like I never didn't see you out. I had no idea that you weren't drinking like 90% of the time. But anyway, (laughs) that's the context. So I don't know. I'd love to hear how that played into this. So basically any experience that I've ever had with alcohol I would take like a few sips and I would get so sick to my stomach. I would have stuff coming out the back door immediately. I would be like, my arms would go numb. My face would go numb. I would get really nauseous. My breathing would slow and I'd get really tired. And that was with like a few sips of alcohol. So, and I tried every type of alcohol, like, vodka distilled from pineapples like literally fucking everything I could to be like what's wrong and like can I drink because it was Mm -hmm. such an important part of the culture both like in high school and in college um 
in high school, I like didn't have that a lot of friends. So I like wasn't drinking a lot, but like I wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't like opportunities Same. where I was going to be drinking. <laughs> but in college, like I had more friends. So like it were, <laughs> but I, I just knew that like it made me really, really sick. And like, that was it. So what I would do my freshman and sophomore year, I, I didn't want to be the girl who didn't drink. Um, because I realized how big of a part of the culture it was. And I did not want mm-hmm. anyone treating me differently. And I like just did not want to deal with it. So I would pretend. So Olivia, who was my roommate, um, she was the only one who knew. And she was the fucking best. And what we would do is we'd go to a bar and we'd get two beers. And she would drink half of the first one and she'd hand it to me. And then she'd get the other one and go live her little life. And now I had a half drank beer that I'd carry around with me for the rest of the night. And mm-hmm. so whenever someone like offered to buy me a drink or was like, oh, like, do you want this? I'm like, oh, no, like, I already have one. Don't worry about it. And then people were like, oh, okay. And so everyone thought I was like a blackout. I remember that. I remember people like saying to Liv, like, oh, my God, what's it like living with Jackie? She must be such a mess. She's like always so crazy all the time. <laughs> She's like, okay. Um, I remember I had a guy once. I was talking to him at like an exchange. And he looks at me and he goes, you're like really cool. But like, and I'd love to take you home. But like, you're way too fucked up. Like, I can't do that. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you're like well you fucking suck anyway so exactly. wasn't gonna go home this, with you anyway i'll take this excuse <laughs> yeah, but for sure <laughs> i'm way too drunk oh. <laughs> and then come like my junior year i was dating this guy and i couldn't really hide it anymore um because what was hard for me was like dinners so if you have like an invite dinner or something people could see my drink and they could see mm-hmm. how much I was drinking. And they and a trick I would do is like if I was at a bar and I had a drink, every time I went to the bathroom, I'd pour a little bit more of it down the toilet. So I would like go to the bathroom, pour some down. So it looked like I was finishing the drink. You have no idea. Like I was sneaky about it. I feel like, you know, like That's alcoholics crazy. are like sneaky about how they do drink. Like how like, they're like, like I how swear much I'm not drinking. drinking. And they have all these yeah. sneaky things to actually drink. Yeah. No, I was the opposite. Like I was like, guys, I swear I'm drinking. Um, but dinners were really hard. So I couldn't hide it anymore. And so then people were like, well, like, why aren't you drinking? And I'm like, it makes me really, really sick. Like, I don't know. And then some people, one person I remember, I was on like spring break. He was like, I don't believe that you can't drink. Drink the, I'm going to get you a mojito. Drink the mojito. And I was like, fine, watch me. And I drank the mojito and I shit my pants and I threw up and I like, it was a whole thing. And he was like, okay, Jackie cannot drink. No one give Jackie any alcohol. I'm like, thank you. Uh, <laughs> thank you. And people also always try- like, why is that a thing? Even if you, this is like what I'm t- like, just, I'm so passionate about this now. Like, yes. even if you were fucking lying, like who is it up to him yes. to like push you into drinking? Like, why is that a fucking thing? Why did you have to feel for two entire years to like lie to people that you loved so much just because the culture was so deeply ingrained in this like fucking toxic behavior. I could go on for like hours about this, but like, and we're going to go on in my podcast. I think (laughs) this goes more to show like how drinking culture was at USC. It's not even just USC though. I think it's just like the general world. I think you would have done that at any school realistically that you went Mm -hmm. to. At least the big um, schools. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so I, so junior year, I told people I was allergic and I didn't drink because I did go to a bunch of doctors also because I was like, this is fucking ridiculous. They're like, we don't really know what's going on, but it sounds like it makes you really sick and like you shouldn't fuck with it. So don't. (laughs) Just don't. (laughs) So I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, bet. Um, So I told people I didn't drink and people knew I didn't drink. And the shift in how I was treated was unbelievable. And I wished for the rest of college that I had never told people that. 
like, yes, because I went from like being one of the group and sort of like, oh, like fun, Jackie, whatever. We're all going out together. It's super fun to like, oh, Jackie's sober. Oh, you're no, it's really great that you're sober. That's like really cool. Like, I wish I could do that too. Um, I'm like, really? You do? Because you're drinking right now. The best way I would describe it is like how people describe when they come home to their parents and they're like drunk and they like pull it together to like say like, hi, mom and dad. Like, I'm just going to bed right now. That would happen Mm -hmm. to me with every conversation. And it sucked. And I also didn't get, I was constantly reminded of it because people would be like, wow, that's so cool. That's so cool that you don't drink. Yeah. Like, I wish I could be sober right now too. And I'm like, why can't you? Like, mm-hmm. if you really wished it, you would be. Stop trying to, like, tell me that I'm, like, so great and this great person when you're treating me so differently and it's so fucking uncomfortable. And you can't get away with anything either. So I remember, like, I would say things and or I would do something and they'd be like, oh, my God, like, I can't believe you're, like, dancing like that, like, crazy. Like, you're sober. I'm like, why? Like, why did you have to? What the fuck? Like, mm-hmm. it was so, it was so fucking annoying that it was like always felt like you're such a defining feature of me. And I had to be the one that was like always put together and whatever. Whereas before I could be just like everybody else, but now it was like known that I was sober. And so I was treated so differently. And I had just like wished all the time that I like didn't tell anyone. It like really changed my social life from like first half of college to second half of college was drastically different because of that. And so then post-college going out, same awkward. I'm allergic. I don't drink. Same fucking conversation with everyone who has a pulse. And then (laughs) I was in this program and I was talking to my behavioral therapist and she was like, is there any, do you have any like food allergies or things like that? And I was like, I gluten dairy because I'm a white bitch living in LA. So of course. And then, (laughs) (laughs) and alcohol like, and Oh, and by this point I wasn't just drinking alcohol. I couldn't eat anything cooked in alcohol. Cause I was like, Mm. that's going to make me sick. So like, I can't have anything cooked with wine like that. I can't risk that. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I don't, and I don't have any alcohol. She was like, why don't you drink? And I was like, well, it makes me really, really sick. She's like, well, what are your symptoms? And I like explained it to her and she's like, are those any different from your panic attack symptoms? And I was like, um, not really. And she was like, do you think it's OCD that's causing the drinking? And I'm like, could it be? And she's like, it's very common. Uh, it's like a very common OCD wow. thing to be scared of drugs and alcohol because of fear of losing control. And it could just be subconscious. And you couldn't eat, like you might not even think about it. Um, you might want to, but you're body is so scared that the thought that you could possibly lose control by having a sip of something could send you into a full panic attack. So I was like, holy shit. (laughs) Like no, no fucking way, but this makes total sense. It's the exact same thing as the nuts. Like it was the exact, (laughs) is the exact same thing. It's adult peanuts. (laughs) It is adult peanuts. And so I, what I would do, my exposures were to sit, I had a glass of water and I would dilute it with a splash of wine and I'd have a sip of that. And then I would have a full-blown panic attack. Everything would happen and I'd wait for the panic attack to subside and I'd take another sip. And I would do that until I was able to get to just pure wine 
And I got up to like three sips of that. And I've now gotten to the point at Stagecoach, I was able to get to half a hard cider. And that was like (gasps) unbelievable. So my goal is to get to one drink. I'm totally working up to it. It's very funny because half a drink does get me very drunk. Being drunk is funny, you guys. Can I share some things that I've noticed? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. I... I find out things that I'm thinking the same time I say them. I didn't know. (laughs) I started saying things and like I was finding it out at the same time as everybody else. I had no idea what was going to come out. That was so funny. I couldn't stop talking. I get so distracted. I'd be like talking about one thing and I'd be like shiny over there. And like, that was it. (laughs) I just wanted to dance. It was really funny. Um, but that was like, I'd have to get over the panic. So literally, I'm not joking. My therapy homework every weekend is to have half a white claw whenever I go out. Um, like, that is my therapy homework. And I didn't do it last weekend because I got nervous. I was out and I had a few sips and I started panicking. And I was like, I can't do this. Like, I can't do this. And I made up excuses. And I was like, this is why I can't do this. It's because it's a new setting. It's because it's different people, whatever. Um, and like, that was like not what I was supposed to do. That wasn't in my treatment plan. And my treatment plan is to drink. Mm-hmm. So tonight, like I need to have, I didn't have one last night. I only had a few <laughs> sips, but <laughs> I have to have half of a fucking June shine or something tonight. Like that is my, that is my therapy homework. Um, and I, cause I'm really sensitive to like somatic sensations. I had, but it's so funny, but I'm experiencing the exact same thing with drinking. Like last night I was like talking to this guy and he was like, oh wait, you don't have a drink. Like go get a drink. Um, do you want something? Like, let's go grab a drink. And I was like, okay. And I grabbed a white claw, took two sips of it, but the and then that was it for the night. I literally only took like mm-hmm. two or three sips. But then it wasn't an issue and it wasn't a thing. And we just chatted and it like went great. Otherwise, if I was like, oh no, I actually don't drink, you'd be like, Oh, like we why do you drink? And like then it becomes a whole thing. So and I'm treated so differently now. Um, and yeah. I wish I could say. Like, I really wish I could say, like, you know what? Like, I'm proud that, like, I don't drink that much and I am and I don't have to, whatever, I can be honest about it and open about it, inspire other people. Like, I wish that was the case for me. Uh, it's not. Like, mm-hmm. I like that now I can give off the perception that I'm drinking and I'm one of the group. And, like, that's that's great for me. So that's why it's hard because I'm like, okay, all I really wanted was just to like show everyone that like I was drinking whatever. And now I can just pretend again. Um, yeah, but my therapy homework is to actually do it. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, perfect. I'm just back into pretending. Exactly. Um, She's like, no, you haven't conquered it. (laughs) That is just like mind blowing mind body connection to me. Like that is, yeah, I feel like there is so many like studies in that entire experience like one is the perception thing <laughs> to, like I'm just that is yeah. the craziest story um yeah wow I am like speechless at how you literally like manifested your own symptoms and yes basically made your fears come to life and reinforced the fact that they were gonna happen from before you were even I think the thing that's craziest to me is before you were even aware that that was a possibility like Yes. You literally thought you were allergic for this many years. And just now you're like, oh shit. Like, it's not like, oh, it happened once you threw up and then that was your response. Like, it's not like, oh, you blacked out one night, threw up yeah. all over yourself. And then that was your response. Like it happened immediately. 
That is what's crazy to me. I wow. think like that's the hard thing about anxiety disorders is, and especially like control anxiety disorders is like, they can be so strong that you can really just think that, that it's happening, that whatever you, yes. you fear is happening. Like you can manifest all of that. Like you I could know. convince me right now that I, if you told me, Jackie, your left index finger is numb and it's about to explode and it's swelling. Give me two minutes. <laughs> and I would be in an ambulance. Like we <laughs> will not say that. Exactly. Like it's it's remarkable. <laughs> well, that yeah, that is like I need you to write a book about mm-hmm. that entire experience. You <laughs> need to you. like one day. I we need to like fund some studies because that is so fascinating. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, thank you so much for coming on. That was an amazing story to share, and I'm super excited for everyone listening. We're doing a pod swap. So we are going to come on. If you want to take a minute to like pimp yourself out here and share where people can find you. Yeah. My name is Jackie Norris on Instagram. I am at Jackie the Taiga. Don't ask why. Wish I had a story for why that was the case. It's I don't. Uh, And then my (laughs) podcast is called Definitely Not Funny. And you can find that on Instagram at Def Not Funny Pod. And you can get it on all, all podcast streaming platforms. Um, amazing and we'll put it in the show notes too so you guys will perfect you guys will see it but well thank you so much Jackie that was so fun oh you guys are so sweet this was really awesome like really special thank you so much for listening we hope that you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it don't forget to subscribe rate and review and follow us on TikTok and Instagram at still no plan pod see you next Wednesday Wednesday. woohoo